The financial dads are not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, tax or other advice in or by virtue of this podcast. Hello, welcome to the Financial Dads Podcast with Paul Fagan and Paul Becker. This podcast is for all the moms and dads out there who struggle with life's topics, especially related to family and finances. Now here's my dad, Paul Fagan. Hey everyone, welcome to the Financial Dads Podcast. Um, a quick show note, the other Paul is not available this week, so this Paul is flying solo. you have to figure out which Paul is uh, doing the episode this week. Um, today's podcast is with Aaron Rubin. I will talk to Aaron about smart investments for people who don't have an advisor and financial secrets he wishes to, everyone knew about. Um, I will also talk about an interesting topic, uh, pre-IPO and financial planning, uh, something I don't think we've explored on the show before. Uh, he is, an, attacks, he is a, an attorney, a CPA, and a CFP, and Aaron runs a wealth management practice that integrates tax, financial planning, and investing. Uh, Aaron published his first book, Financial Adulting, as a guide to help young professionals navigate tax, investment, and estate planning. He lives in San Francisco uh, in the Bay Area with his wife, three daughters, two golden doodles, and five chickens. So I definitely want to hear more about that. Aaron, welcome to the show. Yeah, great, great to be here. And and just in case anyone from San Francisco is listening, I actually live like 20 minutes south of San Francisco. Uh, and it's one of those things where if you're not in the city, you're you're not a San Franciscan. And I, I don't I don't, I don't want to hear catch anything. Uh, oh, it, we have a similar thing here. Um, uh, I live about 40 minutes outside of New York City, and people who live in New York City say that I'm upstate New York. Oh, upstate, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which I, my brother is like three hours away from me. Now that I would consider upstate, but uh, so it's pretty funny. So yeah, we'll make sure that people know and people listening that you're you're outside of the Bay Area, but in the Bay Area, but not in San right. Francisco. Right. Right. So right. Well, and, and originally I'm from Chicago. Chicago. I'm sorry, I almost said that Chicagoland, uh, and same sort of thing, uh, where where either you're from Chicago or you're from Chicagoland, uh, and Chicagoland goes up to like into Wisconsin. Um, oh. and, and in into Indiana, technically. So if you're from like Garrett, oh man, like Gary might be a little far, but if you're in like that that border town of Indiana and Illinois, you know you're part of Chicagoland. If you're in Racine, Wisconsin, you're part of Chicagoland, but you are not from Chicago unless you are from the borders of Chicago. So that is uh, so I, funny. Yeah, I, city city people are so particular. <laughs> I've never heard that before. And I've been to Chicago a number of times. Um, that is great. That is great. So, um, yeah, I want to just jump right in with you, Aaron, and tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to where you are today. Yeah, so uh, I, I graduated college with a uh, with a degree in Spanish literature and uh, in economics uh, and, uh, and and accounting. Uh, and so I uh, and then after that worked for enough profit. Went to law school. Uh, you know, graduated law school. Worked for a big big four accounting firm. Uh, Deloitte for for a bit, working in high net worth um, individuals. Moved to a regional accounting firm. Uh, worked a lot of state uh, and uh, and trust, uh, and then uh, joined uh, my current firm uh, in uh, 2009. So right after that big crash in 2008. So I got to I got to miss that with my with my clients. <laughs> uh, um, but uh, and and I've that's what I've been doing ever since. And uh, several years ago. We had a we had a refocus of the firm. Um, you know, we had been that really classic, um, you know, hey, we're going to help you know widows and orphans and retirees and, and really that all catch all um, sort of sort of way of doing things. Uh, and then uh, and then we discovered we kind of we sort of looked back at our clients and we had uh, Zoom had just gone public. You know, this was like three or four years ago, uh, and um, we had a bunch of Zoom clients 
Uh, and we looked at it and we said, wow, we, we do that really well. Um, that's what we should focus on. Uh, and, and we haven't looked back. Um, and it's, it's been fantastic. Uh, not as many IPOs today, <laughs> so it's not on people's minds. Um, cause you know, for those, for those in the future, uh, we're in, uh, we're in July of 2022, uh, on a Saturday, by the way, you know, you know, you're a dad, you know, and a financial dad, if, you know, on your Saturday mornings, like you, you head to, to a podcast to like record, you know, financial, uh, advice, uh, podcast, but anyway, uh, but we, um, we've been doing it and, and we love it. Uh, we have a tax firm in house, so we, we really integrate that tax and, um, and finance and investing strategy thing. So it's, um, you loved it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, I think that it, we were talking a little bit pre-show. Um, I think a lot of companies nowadays and, and it kind of ties the either, you know, pre IPO, IPO and post IPO, right? So there are a lot of companies that are paying with equity as opposed to, and, and that's a big part of their compensation package, whether you're an IPO or, or a, a company that's been out there for some time. One of the things I wanted to ask you was if you could clarify for our audience a little bit, we hear about the term IPO, uh, initial public offering. Uh, I even, I want to make sure I got it right. And, and just, if you could dig in a little bit, give us a couple of minutes on what that's all about, just for people that may not know the term um, as well as, as yourself. Yeah. So yeah, and, and Palm Ledger wrote up that, you know, there's a pre-IPO, IPO, and post-IPO. You've, you've stolen the second slide of my pitch deck. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, so, um, but, uh, but, but you're welcome to it. Yeah. So, you know, when, when a company is, you know, is, is born, so to speak, when it's an idea in somebody's head, um, they go out and they, they find their friends and family, uh, and they, they do what's called pre-seed, uh, and they raise, uh, dollars $100,000, whatever they can, um, to, to try to, try to get enough, people in to have a proof of concept or not a proof of concept, have a, have an idea that they think can actually work. And then they go out and they get angel investing. Um, and then uh, the angel investors come in to give them seed money, you know, could be, could be a million dollars, could be $500,000. And then, and then the company starts, starts growing a little bit and they start, now they start having, um, you know, something that's maybe close to going to market. Uh, and so then they get their A round of funding. A round of funding can, I mean, I've seen A rounds at $50 million. Most A rounds are well below that. Um, then, then, then once, once they have like a prototype, you know, typically they'll, they'll end up in, you know, that B round where they can actually start selling things. Um, and, and, you know, then they may start getting some revenue in. They go to the C round because now they actually have a concept that's actually working and maybe it's selling. So, so, so it goes through C, D, E, and, and, you, and, and, it, and they keep growing and they keep getting more cash. Um, but eventually the investors who's put all this money in from, from pre-seed all the way up to that D or E round, um, they, they want to get out. Um, you know, they, they want to have their liquidity event because um, they have a lot of capital tied up in there. Uh, and then the people who started, obviously, they have a lot of stock as well. And, and they've, you know, uh, a lot of times, you know, the first few years, you, you don't get paid at all. Uh, and then um, and then even later on, you know, most of your compensation is still tied up um, in this company. So, you know, a company has a few choices um, when it wants to have that liquidity, right? When it wants to, to either raise, well, it's going to raise more money because it's going to sell some shares. It's going to give their stockholders additional liquidity. They can be acquired, which is one way of doing it. They can, they can do a SPAC, um, which is in the news, which was in the news uh, a, a lot probably about a year back. Uh, it was pretty popular. Um, we can talk more about that if you want. Um, and then um, 
uh, they'll they'll merge in. Uh, they'll oh, that's it. Well, that's an acquisition. Um, they'll go direct direct listing. So that means they they just sort of say, hey, world, these are our shares. Go ahead and buy them. Or they'll go an IPO route. And an IPO is that initial public offering um, is done through a series of banks, um, and those banks, um, you know, help finance the 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 actual um, mechanics of the offering. They they get um, they're, they're called syndicates. They get um, they get their their kind of their larger clients have an opportunity to pre-buy the shares at that at an IPO price, which is set by the syndicates, and then. Um, and then once that IPO is supposed to happen, it's an IPO date. The ring, the bell is off. You know, you you'll often see the pictures of you know of whoever's turn it is on that day to ring the bell. They have gone public on that day, uh, and um, at that point, there's liquidity for some people, not everyone, um, which which is sort of the, the interesting part of it. Uh, and um, for people who are who ha- are early shareholders or their um, uh, their employees. Uh, there's oftentimes restrictions on the shares, so that means they can't sell right away, or or maybe they're limited in their sales, which is a little more popular nowadays. Um, but um, either way, they can't just sell the whole, you know, kit and caboodle on that day. Most people actually don't want to. Uh, but but either way, they 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 usually it's a, it's a six month lockup period. So before six months, they can't sell the whole thing. They're either limited or they can't sell at all. Um, and so um, at that once that six months is up is up, now they can sell if they don't have insider information that's material. So again, there, there's all these caveats and restrictions um, that go into the IPO process for someone who's just, you know, who's been with the company for five years and has a bunch of shares. Um, but the, again, that IPO process takes a while. So from, you know, from pre-seed to IPO, um, you know, you could be looking at seven to 10 years perhaps. Um, you know, companies are, are holding out longer. Um, to, to go public um, because when you go public, all of a sudden you're subject to a board that, you know, has duties to the SEC. You know, the SEC wants to see 10Ks. They want to see all these disclosures. Um, it's, a, it's a different it's a different world and you, you become um, responsible to sh- more shareholders. Um, and it, it's it's a lot of places are trying to not go public as long as they can. But eventually those investors, they want their money. Um, so. Yeah, that and, that and that's an IPO process in the nutshell. We can go in the nuts and bolts, and it's. I love it. No, <laughs> I'm glad I asked the question because um, we have a lot of listeners that are I know that are younger, um, that are in companies that are you know part of that, or you know or strive to be part of that uh, group of you know the Facebooks, the Netflix, uh, you know the Amazons uh, of the world, right? And I think. You know, pre-show, we talked a little bit about a lot of companies going in that direction in terms of giving out equity as part of the compensation package. Um, if you could tell us a little bit about the term SPAC, because I have heard it before as well. And once again, I'm learning. It's always day one. I learned a lot just from the f- three or four minutes that you talked about. IPO was way better than the answer I was in, I was thinking about because you brought so many other pieces to it and really explained it well. If you could tell us a little bit about what a SPAC is for the audience. Uh, a, a SPAC stands for a special purpose acquisition company. Uh, and what happens is a, a group of investors go out and they say, you know what, we want to raise money, lots of money, um, to buy a company. And, and part of the, part of the, pro- part of the, part of the interesting problem is that you can't identify the company prior to creating the SPAC. Now, once you create the SPAC, you go out to the public market. So you get listed right away. Um, and you and basically the the leaders of the SPAC and usually they're well well known um, within the investment community. They'll say, "Hey, 
give us give us money and um and we'll buy a company um somewhere in the in and they'll they'll list the space they'll be like oh we're gonna buy a gaming company or we're gonna buy a manufacturing company, whatever it might be usually usually it's it's some sort of tech automotive something like that um and, the, and so people will essentially buy buy the shares we'll give them money um and um and they, and they have two years to complete a transaction that means in two years they have to find a company to buy or they have to return the the capital that they raised with interest to the investors so there's there's a high incentive to to find a company to buy uh, you can imagine um and so once the um so that eventually they they find a target company and and they buy them out what kind of companies do they typically buy out you know i don't i don't know how often they're pre-revenue but i think pretty often they're pre-profit um or they they might they might they might actually i think there are some that are pre-revenue and so that means they're very young companies they're younger than probably they should be but mm -hmm. what they get they get an infusion of cash you know to do that you know that research that they need to do the the issue that that i think we've had especially in the downturn is that it's exposed a lot of that um and so you know at the, in the wall street journal i think it was probably three weeks ago four weeks ago um they had an article about how i think it was like 20 or 25 SPACs were warning hey we're not gonna be around for a whole lot longer um because they they just again they they were pre they weren't pre-revenue but they just didn't have a product yet that could go to market on, on, on scale um so so again the the spac is is sort of a little bit going out of style although i think the company just just spac last week um but um but yeah it's a it's an interesting uh concept and uh and hedge funds have have sort of discovered the spac and, and i think that's sort of what's driving you know part of it is that um, when when the SPAC occurred, when they actually go to acquire that company, you can opt out of the shares at that point. And a lot of hedge mm -hmm. funds do um, because they want to get the high interest rates that are that are associated with pulling your money out. Because I think they set it like a the ten year treasury. I mean, I'm not now now I'm getting now I'm getting a little bit in the weeds that even I I'm not sure about. But they they, they get a decent amount of interest more than they would like in a bank account. Hmm. Um, and and so they they use it sort of to park cash for for a time, because um, they know that at least in two years some they're gonna be, they're gonna have to they're gonna have the ability to pull their money out. Um, so it happens a lot. So when that spec actually happens, a lot of people, majority of people, majority of the shares pull out, um, and so all the cash sort of flows away. And so, but they still want, they still need to complete the deal. So then what they do is they turn to private debt and then private debt fills in the void. Um, but you know, that has a, that has other issues with it too when you're dealing with private debt. So again, it's, it's a super complicated area, uh, but certainly not as in style as it once was. Yeah, no, I love, I love the, the answer because one of the things I had heard the term before, uh, I had these discussions, you know, kind of barbecue discussions with people that their company was entertaining this and, and you've explained it a lot better than I had envisioned and what it what it actually is. So thank you for that. I think, you know, well, kind of sticking to the IPO, like what is the worst IPO tax mistake you've seen? And I guess that's from a, a, a personal perspective, right? Someone who has IPO shares or part of an IPO that's going to get some level of compensation based on the IPO. What what's the worst mistake that you see them make from a tax perspective? Yeah. So it, it usually has to do with incentive stock options. So in 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 the in the pre IPO or the stock option world, there's on well, stock option in general. Mainly, there's three types that people get. 
you know, the first type are RSUs, restricted stock units. Um, and uh, restricted stock units, essentially they vest and then you get taxed on in your paycheck. Easy. You know, there's there's really not a ton of planning to do around that. Um, the next the next sort of interesting one is is the um, uh, the non qualified stock option that you have a choice to buy or not. It's not like an RCU where it automatically happens, but as it vests, you can choose to exercise it. The difference between that and the fair market value of, of your exercise price and the fair market value that goes on your paycheck. Um, so again, there there is some planning to be done around that. Because you can, because you can, you can affect the timing, and there's there's things to consider. Um, but you know where the real um, the real benefits come out are with where it's with incentive stock options or ISOs. A lot like the the non qualified stock option, there's going to be a delta between the fair market value and and the and the, the strike price, which you're going to pay for it. That amount though is not included in your W two. It's actually put into a different part of your tax return. Um, in on, on a form that calculates your alternative minimum tax. Um, and, and I won't go too deep into alternative minimum tax because it's, it's, it can be a little complicated. But essentially, on your tax return, there's, there's sort of two tracks your income tax runs on. The first track is the one that we all know and love. You know, you get all these, you, know, you get your income, you get your deductions. It's all on page one. It's easy to see, you know, you mortgage interest, you know, the state and local, you know, all, all that stuff. Um, and um, you, you calculate it, you know, find your taxable income, you use the graduated rates that, we, that you get in the tax tables, easy. The second track um, is is the track that's called the alternative minimum tax. And, you, and what you do is you start with that taxable income you calculated the first time around uh, that you know and love. And the, and the IRS or Department of the Treasury or Congress, whoever you want to blame mm-hmm. for this one, um, they get to say, well, wait a second, we're going to add some income to your to your to your taxable income that wasn't taxable before and we're going to take away some deductions you may have gotten on before or for, on, on your regular taxable income and so and so one of the the big add backs that they have um is are is that delta between the in on an incentive stock option um and so on your tax return you could what you could be thinking is, well, gosh, you know, this incentive stock option, it's not on my W-2. What's the problem? Well, it's sitting somewhere else in your tax return. You just don't know about it until you calculate it. Um, and so I've seen people owe plenty of money um, on on that little piece because they didn't realize that purchasing the incentive stock option was a taxable event. And and, and there's planning to be done around that, right? And, and, and it, you can, it can be a, a break it up in the tax year planning. It can be purchasing it in the earlier part of the year if you think you're going to go IPO. I mean, there's there's lots of games to be played with it, but you have to know it exists. <laughs> and 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 I've and I've had you know in, in with prospects, you know, I've had you know they tell me, hey, oh yeah, I got these fifty thousand shares. Oh, that's great. Um, well, you know, what's the strikers? Oh yeah, well, I already exercised it earlier this year. Really? Uh, okay. Um, you know, did you to just set aside the tax for that? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> well, you know that fifty thousand shares you exercise. You know the, the difference there was ten dollars a share. That's a five hundred thousand dollar difference that's going to end up on your AMT. You know, you could be looking at having possibly having to pay hundred thousand dollars on that. You know, have you have you planned for that? <laughs> you know, and and you're like, wait, wait a second. You know, I owe what? Uh, you know, and and that that's a huge mistake. Um, and, um, and so again, 
part part of part of the mistake is one not not knowing it exists. The other part is not getting the help you need to see if you can try to avoid some of that, um, and and not thinking through through that decision. Um, and you know you're going to pay you're going to pay a CPA like our firm. You know you know our our hourly is you know we're three hundred dollars an hour, um, and you know you're going to pay us a couple hours of work. It'll, it'll, it's going to cost you, you know, like six hundred between six hundred and you know a thousand dollars to do. But you're going to be able to plan it, and and there's there's something there's something worth that money, uh, and so I that that those that's the mistake I see. Yeah, no, that's great. I I think from a uh, that leads right into my next question is like when should someone at a pre IPO company contact an advisor? But I think that question becomes more broad, and we've talked about it on the show with a number of guests. Is you know assembling that that right financial team, right? So an attorney. For a state, you know, an accountant and a financial advisor, whatever those folks are, you build this team around you, and it kind of it sounds like anyone who's pre-IPO, right, uh, should contact an advisor. I don't know when they wouldn't. And now, I'm thinking after hearing what you just said with the mistakes where people just don't know um, any anything beyond a, a normal tax return, we probably want to get advice from someone like yourself or a you know qualified individual that can that can help us route through these complications. So what's your opinion when it comes to, to, you know, someone um, at a pre IPO company, you know, contacting an advisor? Yeah, I, I think, I think if you have a bunch of RSUs, you know, and you get your W2 and, you know, it, it all, it's all, you know, pretty straightforward. I agree with you. You know, you, you probably, TurboTax is probably fine. Um, you know, it's when you start having, you know, these options, you know, again, the, you sort of have to make that decision of, you know, if, if you have 10,000 shares and they're all worth 10 cents a piece, you probably can't do a whole heck of a lot of damage, <laughs> you know, to yourself. Right. Um, but you know what, if you have a couple hundred thousand shares, well, not now you, now you have something. Um, so you know, again, what, once you have the options piece, it makes sense just to chat. You know, I, there's, there's people I've talked to, you know, where we look at it and I say, yeah, you know what, you don't, you don't really need, you know, me or, or my team at this point, you know, it's, it, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I'll, I'll, I'll tell them when they do need, when they do need us. Um, but you know, usually, you know, people in the space will at least talk to you, you know, even if you just call a random person up and say, Hey, I'm thinking about this, you know, is, you know, should I hire you for this? And, and the, the ones that have, you know, any sort of scruples will, will say, Oh yeah, this makes sense or no, this doesn't, or, Hey, you need a limited engagement or, Hey, you know, we should be preparing your tax return. Uh, you know, but, um, Again, it's it, sooner rather than later is, is a good idea, and then and part of the other thing is they have to they have to know a little bit about it. Um, I get a lot of people who come to me because their prior CPA told them, "Hey, I, I don't know what to do with the stock option thing," um, and it, it's 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 not well. I shouldn't say it isn't complicated. It is complicated, um, but you know, for for people that that don't really work with it that often, it's they they don't they're not as familiar with the strategies. Um, so you really got to make sure that somebody has done it before. Yep. No, I appreciate your honesty. I mean, it reminds me of, you know, I remember I hurt my, my ankle. I know it's a weird tie, but, um, and I went to a surgeon, uh, to take a look at it. And the surgeon's like, we don't need to cut you open here. We could just, let's try fixing this, this other way with a brace and, and it, and it fixed. Right. Yeah. And I love your advice for, Hey, just go use TurboTax, right? You got our shoes coming in, just use TurboTax. You're going to hit a certain threshold or a certain, event or a certain situation where you may have to pull in someone like yourself. So I appreciate the clarity and honesty there. And I'd love to drill a little bit into the RSU conversation. Uh, that's people who, 
you know, are receiving this equity as part of their comp package. If you could go into a little bit more detail on on the RSU product itself, if you want to call it a product or compensation. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So so RSUs are at the heart. They're phantom stock. Um, they're they're stock that it hasn't been issued yet. It won't be issued until it actually vests. Um, and this is this is a little bit different than than what what. We, what uh, what we call an RSA, a restricted stock award. Um, I don't want to get too deep into that one, you know. But again, the, the RSU isn't issued yet, and so it's phantom stock. And so what happens is there's usually usually it's a it's a four year vest. There's a cliff in year one, uh, meaning that you know typically you know you won't you won't be able to vest any shares until after you've had your first anniversary, you know, with the company. And then after that, typically. It, Typically, invest monthly. Sometimes it's quarterly, uh, and then and as it vests, if you're at a, if you're already IPO'd, um, you know what happens is they whatever the the fair market value is on the day of the vest that gets stuck into your W two. The company will sell roughly fifty percent of the shares to cover the tax, um, which is again subject to FICA and Medicare as well as you know income uh, for both federal and state. If you're at a pre IPO company, it vests, but companies typically have what's called a dual trigger. Uh, and what that means is there's a time trigger, meaning that yes, you have these shares, they're they're yours, um, but there's also what's called um, a second a second trigger, which is a liquidity event. So you you can't sell them until something's happened with the company. It's been acquired, it's gone direct listing, it's gone IPO um, or SPAC. Um, and, and so once that happens, now they all vest in one fell swoop. So if you've been at a place for four years and they've been giving you double trigger RSUs and let's say 50,000 shares, you know, over four years, um, all of a sudden, you know, it goes IPO. Sometimes companies will will have the, the, the trigger be IPO date. Sometimes they'll have the trigger be uh, six months after or the day that you can sell them, which is a lot nicer. Uh, if, if you want to, if, if the people on the podcast want to do some light reading, uh, check out... Um, Check out Uber's IPO uh, and what they did with their RSUs. That was a mess. Um, but um, but if if it's been a four years and let's say you hit that second trigger date, all of a sudden you have a flood of income on your W two. I mean, I mean, depending on the price of the shares and how many shares you have, I mean, it could be hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars at your W two just just in one fell swoop. And a lot of times, because RSUs are considered bonus, they're subject to supplemental withholding, not regular withholding. So oftentimes, um, they will under withhold severely on your RSUs, and all of a sudden, you'll have a huge tax bill due in April that you didn't know about. So you got to be very, if, if you're in a situation where you're, you're going to have a lot of RSUs vest at once, you really need to see a tax person to do a tax projection. Um, or, you know, do your desk, if you're going to do it yourself, you know, you know, God bless you, um, you know, and, you know, good luck. I, I hope you get it right because, because, because you don't want to pay penalties and interest and all that. Um, but, um, but yeah, those, again, that's, that's the RSU thing. No, I appreciate that. Um, I think that, you know, I've heard horror stories, right? Uh, people, um, you know, with Enron, they, they're all in on their, you know, whether, you know, their RSU retirement funds, everything is in the company stock. Um, I know anecdotally, a friend of mine was working at Bear Stearns when that imploded, and there were people working there 20, 25 years where, you know, all their all their compensation, everything was tied up in Bear Stearns stock, right? So you hear these stories all the time, and I think it comes back to some of the investing basics. But like, how do you know when you get the stock and it vests, right? Do you, do you hold it? Do you liquidate for cash? 
What's the timing of that? Do you have any personal opinion as to, you know, what people should do when it comes to how heavy should they be in their custom, in their stock, whether they're buying it in the RSU or in addition to that, they're buying shares at a discount, they're buying shares in their uh, 401ks, any general advice that you could give from your expert vantage point? Yeah, I, I have lots of opinions, Paul. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, I told you I'm from the Chicago area. We, we've got lots of opinions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so so my, my general rule that I, I tell clients is um, if there's really no tax advantage, sell it. Um, so, so RSUs are, again, are, are in my mind, a slam dunk. Uh, you know, you get taxed on everything the day it all vests. Um, so there's no advantage to holding it other than if you just like your stock, if you, if you like the stock and you think it's going to, for some reason going to do well, go ahead and, and, and invest in it. You know, again, I, I don't have crystal ball on anything, let alone an individual company. Um, so again, but my, my recommendation for RSU is, is almost always sell by a, you know, depending, depending on the, on the situation, either, either buy a well-diversified mutual fund or ETF, um, well, usually an ETF, um, or, um, or, you know, buy a series of individual, individual stocks to, you know, for, as part of a, a larger strategy. Um, if it's, if it's non-qualified stock options, I generally have the same opinion. Um, you know, once, once you, once you exercise those stocks, right, the difference is on your W-2, you have, you've been fully taxed on it. There is literally no tax advantage to holding it other than you just, there's no, there's no tax advantage to holding it, but the advantage is if you really like the stock. Because, I mean, you, you look at the RSUs and, and non-qualifies this way, right? You've already been taxed on it, so there's no advantage there. So, you know, you've gotten this, you know, this stock worth $50,000, and you're turning around and you're just leaving it in the stock. If I were to hand you a check for $50,000, would you continue putting it in that stock? Most people's answers that I've talked to, almost everyone's answer, other than people who have worked at Apple, say no. You know, I'm I'm not I'm not going to turn around and buy fifty thousand dollars of my company stock. If that's the case, don't hold on to your RSUs that are that have immediately vested. Don't hold on to your non-qualified stock options that are public. Easy. Um, incentive stock options are a little more difficult because there is advantage there. If you hold that stock for a year, the difference between the strike price and the fair market value is going to end up being long-term capital gain, right? Which is which is why you do the whole ISO thing anyway. So so now you have a decision to make. If I hold this for a year, I can get capital gain. But if I hold this for a year and my company screws up, you know, now I've lost more value than I've received on the tax side. So, you know, you, it, it's, a, it's a much more difficult decision uh, to make. Um, same, same sort of thing with ESPP, um, which is a different, which is an employee stock purchase plan. Uh, and, and in an employee stock purchase plan, you give the money, you give your, your company money, you know, every paycheck. Uh, and they, and after, I think it was after a year or two, um, it ends up, um, they buy the shares for you in the ESPP plan. Um, and, um, and, and there's, there's a discount you get. Usually it's 15% uh, discount on the purchase price. But part of the interesting, you know, issue with a, with an ESPP is that there's often a, a, a look back period. So usually the price you get is the lowest price over the previous six months prior to acquisition. So if your company has gone through a wild roller coaster ride, you can actually be buying the stock at a much lower price than what it's worth based upon that look back provision. If you wait for a, for a year from, um, 
from from vest date two years from grant date that entire amount is going to be long-term capital gain uh, other than other than the discount that you got the discount that 15 percent will always end up as essentially w-2 income on your tax return always you know you can leave the company it's still w-2 income on your tax return they have to give you a form and it's anyway but um but but that other part that 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 back date part if you can wait a year you can get full capital gain on that you know so again that that might have a little bit more gamesmanship to it um but again generally if, it, if it's an rsu if it's a non-qualified stock option sell it as soon as you get it uh if it's another type there's arguments to be made cool no I, once again brilliant i love the the candor and I love the answers here because they're very detailed. And I think there's a lot of listeners that are in this boat of having RSUs or buying stock purchase plans. And I think people don't fully understand them. I, I, I definitely talk to people that they get their stock, their RSUs and whatever company they're at. Um, and they feel almost like it's not income to them. Like they should be leaving it where it is. Right. And I think, you know, it kind of goes back to Apple. Right. Like, would you ever sell Apple stock? Well, talk to those people back in 1992 or who held Apple stock. And, you know, it, it was never, you know, you know, prior to the iPod. I don't know. If, I'm a huge Apple fan. I owned everything Apple but the stock. <laughs> I've been an Apple computer guy forever. Um, and I owned every everything they have but the stock. And that's OK. Um, but, you know, it, it, people think that things are going to be a certain way. And, and we all know that they're not, but I've seen people um, treat the RSUs like it's not income, but it really yeah. should be part and considered part of your income. And I think that's another interesting backyard barbecue conversation I've had anecdotally with people. Um, so I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Um, what is the worst investment decision you've seen? And, and alternatively, what is the best investment decision that you've seen? Yeah, so I and I'll never forget the phone calls. So, so two, 2012. So it's you know, um, so 20. I don't know if you remember. So we all remember 2008, right? Uh, hard, hard to forget that one. Market down 50. percent Everyone was saying double dip, double dip, double dip. This is the Great Depression. Double dip. And then 2011. I mean, most people don't remember that as well. But that that um, the third quarter 2011. So around I think it was July 2011. The market actually did another little tank job, down about 10. percent um, and um, in, in like a single quarter, it was crazy. And so people were really spooked. So 2012, I get this call from this woman. He said, hey, we need some help. I said, okay, well, how can I help? She's like, well, my husband is convinced of the double dip. And I said, oh, okay. So what, what's he doing? She said, he's buying triple bear ETFs, um, like, you know, essentially betting three times against the market. And we've lost six, she's lost $600,000, um, you know, in, in that time from all his, his betting, the market's going to go down. And, and I said, well, geez, that, that's, that's terrible. We'll tell you, what, you know, you know, our, our philosophy is very different from that. You know, we, we tend to, you know, just ride the market along and, you know, the market is going to go down, but it's also going to go back up <laughs> and over time, you know, you're, you're going to, you're going to you know, come out ahead. She said, Oh, that's great. That's really what we need. I said, Oh, well, that's fantastic. You know, and I was, I was excited, you know, at that point, you know, I'd only been in the industry, you know, for a couple of years. Um, and, um, thought I had a client coming on board and I said, well, that's great. You know, here, let me show you kind of how we do it. And she said, oh, you use mutual funds. I said, well, yeah, we do. She said, my husband's not using mutual fund. Thanks. And she hung up and I went, oh, okay. You know, now the question is, did he continue with his, with his triple bear? So 
just so your listeners know, because I like to spread the word on this. If you're going to bet against the market, uh, which I don't think you should do, but if you're going to bet against the market, you know, over long periods of time, do not use a lot of those triple bear ETFs that you see. A lot of those things are used for day traders. Day traders use them as a tool to offset market volatility when they're trying to trade on a particular stock. Um, and so they're, they're not meant for long-term holds. So every day the triple bear ETF resets itself back to par. Um, so what that means is, you know, normally if you're losing money on an investment, let's say like today, um, you know, you're losing money on an investment, you know, you lose 10% one day, you're, you know, you start with $100. Now it's worth $90. You lose, you lose 10 you lose 10% the next day, you know, now it's down $9 because you've already lost the, the first 10%. Um, on a triple bear ETF, it resets. So if you lost $10 in day one, you'll also lose $10 on day two because it's a re-leveraged product. So do not, if you're going to bet against the market, do not use day trader tools because it, it will be way worse for you. Um, it's, it's not the same thing. Be careful uh, on those tools because uh, I've had another I have a high current client that sort of has that same not not as bad as that as the perspective mm -hmm. client but has that same hey I want to bet against the market and that and I I always like to warn him hey don't use these tools I still does it but don't use these tools um, you know do something else um, that's the worst thing I've seen you know because because if this guy held I mean I mean I hope she, I don't hope he didn't I mean because if he held on to that through 2013 he he probably would have lost close to everything. 2013 was a 2012 was a good year 2013 was a phenomenal year um, mm -hmm. for the stock market I mean he held on to that not only did he lose on the market growth but he decimated his portfolio in the process um, and and that that was that was pretty horrible uh, yeah to, to see um, the best one I've seen was a client who is at coinbase um, coinbase in the news uh, a lot recently um, they actually went direct listing. So if you want to see uh, a case study of direct listings, try uh, try Coinbase. Um, Slack also did direct listing. If you want to see a company that did direct listings, um, but he and they actually I talked to a couple of people from Coinbase. He and a couple of people from Coinbase. Um, it, when I was talking to them, their their thing to me was, I want to sell everything on day one. And in a direct listing, you can actually do that. There's no restrictions. It's not like they, the reason why you can't sell in that six month period of time during an IPO is it's a syndicate restriction. You can't you can't because there are other rules. It has nothing to do with the SEC. Um, so so he so he and all of his cohorts were able to sell on day one. Coinbase um, came out at two fifty a share. Um, he sold eighty percent of his holdings. Um, which was about one no, it was more than like thirty two million dollars um on on day one and um held on to some just in case you know you know who knows maybe coinbase pops up but all of them were were like hey our fate is tied to cryptocurrency and we don't want our fate tied to cryptocurrency uh and so a lot of the people at coinbase sold a lot of their shares early on super early on and um and obviously they've been rewarded for that you know for sure because i think coinbase is trading i don't know which i mean coinbase is such a horrible run I don't, I don't even know if it's above 20 bucks a share at this point. It came out at 200. I, I have to look back on it. So what, what, one of your listeners can research that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, but, but that was the best. That was the best for sure. Got it. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about the term direct listing. So I guess, is that a little bit different than, than IPO? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's one of those options, you know, I mentioned before acquisition, direct listing, IPO, SPAC. 
Um, so direct listing is, is essentially the, the the company who's selling their shares or who, who are raising capital. They don't go to the bank syndicates and say, "Hey, help us with this." And so and so there's because there's no syndication, they just go direct to the public and they say, "Buy our shares from us." Um, and then the company buys their shares. Um, because a direct listing doesn't have the syndicate involvement, there's less restrictions um, on the shares. And people can typically sell on the first day of trading uh, if they're, um, uh, unless their insiders have material insider information. Um, but um, but generally, that, that's how it works. Yeah, thanks for the answering those questions on the worst and best, uh, and be- worst and best investment decision you've seen. Um, the other thing I want to ask you is, what is the one stock option tax secret you wish people knew about? I I wish people knew about early exercise because um, it's such a powerful tool. So a lot of times when you join a, usually it's a pre-IPO company, um, you join a pre-IPO company and they give you your, your shares. Um, and again, as long as it's not RSUs, because RSUs are, are, are not our phantom stock, but if they give you incentive stock options or non-qualified stock options, you can tell the company sometimes, depending on what they allow, I want to purchase these shares earlier. So I know, I know that they vest, you know, for, you know, one year cliff, then over three years, you know, the balance, you know, every month, but I, but these 10,000 shares or 50,000, whatever it is, whatever you're offering me, I want to buy them now. I want to give you the cash for them now. And sometimes they allow that. And so, um, you know, you give them, you know, let's say it's a, it's a dollar a share. You give them $10,000 for these 10,000 shares. Um, the, the date that you purchase, because it's, it's so early on, there's no difference in the fair market value and the strike price, right? So that, that delta we talked about is zero. Now, because they haven't invested technically, they don't belong on your tax return. But one thing that you can do if you have the option to early exercise is what's called an 83B election. And in an 83B election, you're telling the IRS I know these shares don't belong on my tax return, but I want you to put them on there anyway. And 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 by doing that, you're you're being taxed ahead of time. Now the good news is if it's early enough, the tax is zero because there's zero difference. Um, the benefit is as these shares vest and hopefully as the value of the company goes up, because you've already been taxed on it, you don't owe tax on the vested, um, and that can be a huge advantage. Um, you still owe tax. If you sell, you still owe tax, by the way. But but on the vesting, you don't owe tax, which can be huge. Because think about, you know, it's $10 a share now. Well, what happens when it's $20 a share? What happens when it's $40 a share later on in the in that year four of the vesting? You're going to have to pony up some cash for tax unless you've early exercised and made the 83B election. And the 83B election is it's a 30-day window. So if you early exercise, you got 30 days to notify the IRS of what you did. Otherwise, you lose it, and and, mm. and and you get taxed on the vesting anyway, even though you've pre-purchased. So um, again, it's one of those things where it's, it's super powerful. Um, a lot of companies, for some reason, I haven't figured out why, don't allow it. Um, but if they do, you know, and you believe in your company, and you know, you think it's going to go places, you absolutely go with the, with the early exercise plus eighty three B. Very cool. Yeah, learning so much today about these different products and different offerings, um, and I think our audience is really going to appreciate that. Um, one of the things that you talked about, um, well, I think we were, you know, part of the pre, pre-show um, prep and stuff like that was, you know, there are people out there who do not want to use an advisor for whatever reason, right? And and I think today you've proved that 
whether it's a good attorney, a good financial advisor, a good CPA, they can be worth their weight in gold, right? When it comes to the advice, right? If people don't know about these mechanisms and don't know about these situations and how to do what, it could really bite them, right? But there are going to people, there are going to be people who, "Ah, I don't need an advisor, right? So what investments do you recommend to people who don't have an advisor? Yeah, so I'll say there's there's a couple of investments that, that I like for people who don't want the advisor. The first, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big diversification fan. You know, it, while it doesn't protect you from risk of loss if there's a you know big market downturn, but, you know, it, it protects you from business risk and other risks that might be inherent to stock ownership. Um, and and so, again, I'm, I'm a big mutual fund fan. It's, it's a cheap way to do those investments. Um, you know, I think uh, Warren Buffett, uh, you may have heard of, uh, you know, he, 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 he said, you know, most investors, I'm trying to remember the quote exactly, most investors with institutional and individual are best off in a low cost, um, well diversified mutual fund, right? That's, that's Warren freaking by, right? You know, if you don't, if you don't believe me, believe him. Um, but, um, uh, so, so again, I, Vanguard's a great fund family, always has been, um, you know, you gotta make sure, obviously they've expanded, you know, their, their offerings. So you're going to want to make sure you're not in one of their active funds. Um, but, uh, but again, I'm, I'm a big passive, you know, well diversified um, uh, guy. So again, Vanguard family, fan fun, the Vanguard fund family, I really like. Um, if it's in a if it's in a taxable account, so meaning one in which you get taxed on the dividends and capital gains, um, I'm I'm a bigger proponent of ETFs, uh, and ETFs offer a little bit more um, tax savviness um, on that well diversified level. You get less capital gain distribution, which is going to help you on your tax return. Um, later on, um, the fund family I like, and, and Vanguard has ETFs, which I which I, I like. They're perfectly fine. Um, another fun, but the other fund family that I usually recommend to people is a company called Avantis. Um, Avantis um, uh, is run by American Century. They've they've been around for about three years now, um, and and they're doing some really interesting stuff with um, with tilting to value and profitability and uh, and other investment screens as opposed to doing, you know, active investing. Um, you can also find similar sort of funds with uh, DFA, Dimensional Fund Advisor, ETFs. Um, again, ETFs are, are probably available. There are some mutual funds out there that you cannot buy without an advisor still. Um, like DFA is one that you can't buy without an advisor. Um, and there, there are several others, but ETFs are should be available to everyone. So. Yeah, and maybe we could just spend a minute, kind of the the from your perspective, what's the difference between a standard mutual fund and an ETF, an electronic traded fund? Yeah, so I mean, they they sort of look the same in many respects, but they're not. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, they they sort of act the same in many ways. Um, you know, the big difference is, and, and it's it's not you know it's substantial, uh, is. A mutual fund gets traded at NAV, net asset value, every day. So what, what happens is you put your order in to buy a mutual fund before the market closes. The market closes. The, the fund company reevaluates re, re all of its holdings in the funds, plus whatever the um, how many shares are outstanding, and it gets its, its value per share at the end of the day after everything's closed. Now, everyone who put a sell order in gets that, gets that price. Everyone who puts a buy order in gets that price. Easy. Um, the issue is, is that inside of this of this entity of, of the of the mutual fund, and, and they are entities, right? They're they're usually set up as, as trusts. Um, inside of this entity, there are as they're buying and selling these shares to redeem, or you know, or to create more. Um, well, to create 
create more. But as people are redeeming, they have to sell to get the cash, or they have to, they have to pay fund expenses um, for you know paying the people that work on the fund. They have to sell, and when you sell, you either create capital gains or capital losses. Um, and so they will create capital gains inside of this uh, inside of the mutual fund. Now, one of the new rules of mutual funds is they have to distribute ninety eight percent of all income. Then it's dividends, and that's capital gains. So on your 1099 DIV, there's a section on there that says capital gain distribution. And what that means is that is what the fund itself has liquidated to create cash flow um, for, for investors. And that ends up on the individual investors' tax returns, whoever holding them, when the capital gains get distributed, which is typically in December of, of the year prior to in December of the year of the year end, um, because that's when they can actually tally up, you know, all all of their capital gains and, and all that. So so that gets so that gets shipped out. Now an ETF operates very differently. An ETF doesn't have that. It has a NAV. It has a value of the underlying assets, but it doesn't trade necessarily at NAV um, because it trades intraday, meaning during the day, as opposed to when the day ends. So you put in a, a sell order, you know, at noon it's gonna sell at noon, assuming you made it a, a market order. Um, because that's the case, um, there can be premiums and discounts on that, on that, on those shares. So if for some reason, the market sours on US small cap and no one wants to buy US small cap and you're holding a US small cap ETF, all of a sudden, the, the, the not because the underlying assets, you know, have gone down necessarily, but people have just soured on the whole thing. All of a sudden, the, the share value will drop, even the, and it'll be below what the NAV is. So there's a risk of premium or discount. Well, the risk of premium, you know, there's no. I hope there's premium, right? But you know, but you, but if you buy the shares and then there's a subsequent discount, you can lose value without the underlying shares losing value. The benefit is is um, the, the way that a an ETF works is because it doesn't sort of do that end of the day trading between everyone public. They're, they have, you know, they have companies out there um, called uh, approved participants, and what they do is they can create their their very specific um, uh, people that are approved to do this, um, or entities that are approved to do this. They can create shares, or they can take away shares. They can go to the public market and dismantle um, the shares, and so the ETF will go out. If, let's say there's a premium floating out there. Meaning the, the 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 ETF is trading above what its value is. The what what the providers will do is they'll say, "That's great, you know, we're going to create more shares, you know, using all the underlying parts, and then we're going to sell them on the market, and we're going to get more than the underlying value of the shares." So that's how that's how they collect on the premium. Also on the discount, right? If there's a discount, they say, "Well, gosh, the the fund is worth less than some of its parts." We're going to go to the market. We're going to buy the discounted shares. We're going to pull them all apart. And we're going to sell the individual components, and we're going to make money that way. But one of the one of the interesting things is is that they can actually instead of selling things in the fund, what they do is they trade pieces out, and so they can avoid some of those capital gain distributions because they don't need to make the sale. Um, and so typically that's what they try to do. They try not to have capital gain distributions. They try to instead substitute different parts in. Um, for, on the portfolio, so again, it's 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 a it's a lot more complicated than a mutual fund. Um, there's more pitfalls with that with the premium and discounts, um, but there is more tax advantage uh, on on an ETF.
Cool. Yeah. No, thank you for that. I think our audience, would, it's a great explanation and a way for our, understand, our audience to understand those differences. Because I think the terms mutual fund and ETFs somewhat get thrown around interchangeably, if that makes sense. So, that, yeah, and it, so I think it's good to have that differentiation. And you have to be very careful with that when, you know, if it's, if it's, if it's, so there, there's things called thinly traded ETFs and thinly traded ETFs means there's not a lot of volume and there may not be the number of participants. Um, and so that can vary wildly, you know, from the net asset value to the discounts and premiums. That's not necessarily a good thing. So, so again, the more thinly traded stocks, and again, small stocks, again, are typically thinly traded. You can you can run into a, a big problem. And and there was an issue uh, a couple of years ago with um, uh, with municipal bonds. They were the market had sort of gone haywire on it, and there were there were a couple of of ETFs that that people were a little scared that they were going to sort of collapse because there wasn't the market wasn't there. And so when when, it, when an ETF collapses. Um, basically, what what the what the fund does is it takes all the shares that it's sitting on because it because all these different ETFs shares represent baskets of stock, and and they'll take back the ETF and they'll distribute the basket of shares. So people would have ended up with these baskets of shares with, you know, who knows what cost basis <laughs> it would have been a mess. Um, so thankfully, it didn't happen. But again, the more the more exotic, the smaller the 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 emerging markets, you know. The, those tend to have more issues with premiums and discounts. Um, you know, Vanguard has enough volume that usually it's not a problem. Um, but, you know, some of the smaller ones, you got to be careful. Interesting. No, thank you for that. And I, I feel like we could have you back on the show like 10 additional times. There's so many things to unpack. And thank you for, for doing the show. And I, I got a couple more questions for you, and I'm going to let you go. Um, tell us a little bit about your book, Financial Adulting. I love that title. And yeah. and Tell us a little about the target audience and why you wrote it and, and kind of maybe the process and how you went through that and uh, a little bit more about it. Yeah, it, it was a labor of love uh, for sure. It was was not a labor of profit. Uh, I'll, so I'll say that. Uh, but it, it came about because um, so I, I'd been in the industry for a few years and I was talking with a friend of mine uh, who I used to work in the accounting business with. And he was a super, he was, is a super smart guy, married to another CPA, super smart woman. They're, they're both, they're both great people. Um, and in, in addition to being, you know, super intelligent and we we're sitting down for lunch one day, you know, when I, I moved um, firms and uh, he was saying, oh, you know, I said, gosh, Aaron, I want to tell you something. I, I got this, I got this insurance policy and it's, and it's awesome. And, you know, that's like, that's like red flag number one. Like who says their insurance policy is awesome? Like nobody, everyone hates buying insurance. All right, well, but I'm game, right? So I said, oh, well, all right, well, t tell me about your insurance policy. Said, oh gosh, it's it's so awesome because you know I get I have this insurance, and then like if I don't use it, it turns into a retirement income stream. I was like, ah, okay. I said, well, I'll tell you what, you actually bought an annuity. And he said, no, I didn't. He said, he said, he said, I, he said, he said, I bought life insurance with income protection. I went, oh, that was straight out of the insurance salesman's mouth. Like I like I I I, I heard it and I and I and I cringed. Um, but there was nothing you could do at that point, right? I can't be like, you know, well, go back and undo it because if you know annuities have um they have they have they have um uh, they have rules, right? Where if you pull the money out early, you know, it's you know, it's an eight percent 
you know, penalty, you know, year one, then it goes down overall, but, and then it's super expensive. And by the time you're sort of into eight years and you don't have the penalty anymore, you're sort of, they have your hooks in you because they have a, you know, they usually, there's a, there's a provision that the, the death benefit or the income benefits going up over time, no matter what happens with the, with the market. Um, but the, but the problem is they siphon so much off of the market piece, the market's almost never ahead of where the retirement value is. Anyway, so I said to myself, you know, if this guy who is super smart, who has a wife that's super smart, um, can get tricked into buying an annuity, um, you know, what about everyone else? You know, think think about you know the people that are just out of college, or maybe and or maybe they're uh, maybe they're maybe they're janitors, or maybe they're you know they're, they're customer service. You know, not saying those people aren't smart by the way; they're they're perfectly smart. But you know, it, again, it sort of opened my eyes to gosh, there's a lot of there's a dearth of knowledge out there, um, and so I decided that I wanted to write this book. So uh, it took, and I wrote I wrote I wrote the book myself. So you know, it took me four years, you know, sitting down, you know, in cafes or working on the train or, you know, all that stuff. But, you know, again, I, no one, I didn't hire a ghostwriter at all. It's just, it's all my words. Um, and, uh, it has my, my childhood in Chicagoland, um, you know, weaved into it, uh, which is, which was fun for me, uh, probably self-indulgent, uh, more often than not. But, um, but I wrote it for, for people who, who really needed, to have a base level of knowledge before talking to an annuity salesman, before talking to, you know, some professional who may not have their best interest at heart. Um, and so, uh, and, and by the way, there, there are, I, I know insurance salesmen that I, that I respect deeply and who would never, um, you know, do anything, you know, that would, that happened with my friend. Uh, but again, you, but you have to go with eyes wide open. Um, and so I, I wrote the book, you know, for that reason. Uh, and um, my wife, you know, designed the cover um, and she did a good job on it. <laughs> oh, very cool. And, and, and the, and the, the title was actually crowdsourced, uh, on Facebook. Uh, so I, I threw out like five different titles and like, everyone was like, Oh, I like that. Don't like that. Hey, yeah, I like my, the original title of the book was, um, um, financial, it was like financial adulting, not LOL, but financial adulting, like with emoji or something. And, um, and I got, I got a lot of hate on the emoji <sighs> part of it. Um, and, uh, and so, I, I took that's how I came with financial. I love it. I, did you get the the term copyrighted? It sounds like a very no, like it I, should I, be like those words. I mean, it's a very clever title, right? No, and I, yeah, and you and you know what happened? You know, so is that somebody two no last year this year this year came out with a book called Financial Adulting, um, a, you know, a second Financial Adulting, uh -huh. um, but this one was actually I, I published it myself. Uh, so, but this one was published by a bigger publisher. Um, and I was, I was actually really excited because I want people to accidentally like stumble upon <laughs> mine because like, you know, I didn't, I mean, I didn't have time or, to market it or anything like that. And, and I tried, I tried to push it to different, um, different publishers just to see, you know, what people thought. And basically it was like, nah, it's not really publishable. Um, so, but anyway, so yeah, we'll have financial adulting by the one with the cooler cover, um, you know, and, and that one's mine. Awesome. No, that's good to hear. And then, I, no, as a dad, um, you know, reading your LinkedIn bio, partner in a successful firm um, with the kids, the pets, the family. How do you how do you balance that successful career with family? Right. Like I, I, I always 
fascinated by people. We have a lot of guests on the show who are super plugged into their business, but also have a very successful personal life, right? And I think that's important. And, and you seem to have been able to do both. And I'm curious how you've been able to accomplish that. Yeah, you know, I'll say, you know, some days are better than others. <laughs> you know, it, you know, you know, so, some days, you know, you know, you look back, and I think we all do this. We're like, gosh, you know, I, I could have handled that better. Uh, and uh, and you, you have to reflect on on sort of those those moments. I guess, I, I guess, if I was if I was like a great father, I wouldn't be doing like podcasts on a Saturday morning. <laughs> but uh, same here, I'm guilty but, of the podcasts uh, as well. But. Yeah. Um, yeah, but again, I, I chose this, so you know. Again, it's it's, it's nobody's fault but my own. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's one of those things where I have um, you, you, you should try your best. You know, sometimes you do better than others, and um, you know, my 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 wife tries to keep me honest a little bit on that. You know, because I could easily wake up. I mean, because I, I wake up at at six fifteen to to I have to get my daughter to to, to school at a, a distant city. Um, I wake up early. I could easily wake up early and just and just work until you know and work fifteen hours a day and 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 I'd love it. I would love it, and I know myself. I would I would, and um, and I could work weekends and I could do all these things and 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 I maybe my business would be better. I don't maybe it wouldn't be, um, but it's like it's like when you're when you're passionate about what you do, it's like you, that's, that's all that's all you really want to do. Um, but um, you know it's. When you, when you have kids, you know, your, your kids will keep you honest too. Cause I mean, I can't tell you how many times I'm on my phone writing an email. Like it's like, it's eight o'clock, whatever it is. I'm supposed to be putting the kids to bed. And they'll be like, you know, Hey daddy, you know, you're supposed to be reading some book. I guess I am. So, you know, um, so yeah, so my wife keeps me honest. My kids sometimes keep me honest. Um, and, um, and you know, and, and I try, you know, whenever I go to do something alone, I try not to do it alone. So in, in terms, so like, for instance, I, I, I like going out, I, I like shooting hoops. So, so, you know, I, I go, I go to this, the, the local park and I, you know, bring my basketball, I'll shoot around for you know, 45 minutes. Um, and, you know, I always try to bring my kids with me, you know, and now if they don't want to play basketball, which they generally don't, you know, but they get to play the park and we get to be together. We get to, we get to walk to the park together. You know, we get to have, you know, those, those moments there, which, which is nice. And, and I always like to try when, when I am commuting with my kids, I, I, have always liked to be doing something with them while we're in the car. So like, right. So with my oldest daughter who has to drive every day to, to school in summer school, um, you know, what, what I, well, we'll do is we'll listen to a book together, you know, and, um, and, and it's interesting. She's 12 at this point. Um, and, you know, she has, she has real opinions uh, about things. Uh, and so, um, you know, it's sort of interesting to kind of hear, hear what she has to say. Uh, and, uh, and so, yeah, we'll, we'll listen to a book. So for 45 minutes, we'll be kind of, even though we're driving, we're listening. To, so right now we're, we're doing Wrinkle in Time. Um, and um, one of my favorites as a kid. And, uh, you know, it's, it's cool. It's, it's cool to see that. And it, it, it helps give me perspective, too, because I get to, because I know what I'm thinking about the book. And I remember what I thought about it as a kid. And then I get to hear my kid think about it, you know, in, in kind of her own way. And it sort of, I don't know, it, 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 it helps bring me perspective uh, from that point too. Very cool. Yeah, I have a 12 year old daughter um, and I struggle with the same pieces. Um, she's very opinionated, um, will, will call me out on certain things. And so I totally understand it. And I know we're running, uh, I know we're running over, but I'd love to uh, talk with you on this uh, and revisit a story that we've done 
I guess we did about a year ago. It was in June and it was by CNN Business. Um, and it's, the title was American Workers Don't Want to Go Back to Normal. And that makes sense. So this was kind of like in the middle of the pandemic um, when we saw this story kind of come out. We're kind of coming out of the tail end. And then and people are talking about the record job openings. The great uh, resignation was happening. Right. So the quit rate was high. New people were creating new businesses. Um, wages were, I guess, rising somewhat. There was the extra um, job benefits, the jobless benefits. So, you know, there was all kind of tax credits. There was all kinds of things happening. And I think the gist of the article was, you know, um, you know, take this. I think they said even Johnny Paycheck saying, take this job and shove it. Right. And that was kind of the, the sentiment. Right. And, and so I think we're here now. And I just want to hear anecdotally your opinion. If some of these things are still the same. Right. And I think for me, what I'm seeing is, I'm starting to see it shake a little bit. You know, we're starting to see the economy. Um, you know, we have the record inflation. We have companies that are now thinking, yeah, we're going to do some cuts, right? Uh, they're not going to hire. There's hiring freezes going on at the biggest companies. You wouldn't think we're going to have a hiring freeze. So for me, anecdotally, I, I think that it did go a lot longer. But, you know, I think some of the people who, you know, packed up their family and they worked out in New York and they packed up their family to move to Idaho, um, thinking that they never have to go back into an office again. I, I don't know, right? And I think at some point there's going to be some level of normalcy that's going to kick in. But I'd love to hear your opinion on it as to what you think about where directionally we're going when it comes to, you know, the great resignation, people being back in the office, the job market, all those different things. Just I know it's a lot, but just a couple of minutes yeah. just to hear your opinion. Sure. Yeah. Uh so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story about our firm. So, we, um, so we're in the Bay Area and um, wages are crazy here. Um, and we wanted to hire a, a more junior person and someone, someone with a little experience who could help us you know, with, with clients around the firm. And, um, and so we, we sort of looked into hiring someone locally to, and we don't we actually, we actually don't have an office right now. We haven't had an office in a couple of years that we actually went into. Um, we're, we're fixing that uh, right now. But um, when looking at someone who could potentially come into an office, you know, we were going to have to pay 130,000, you know, plus some additional plus benefits on top of that and all the other stuff that comes along with, with hiring someone. Um, and, um, and we were all talking as a partner group and, and, you know, we said, gosh, you know, we haven't been in an office for two years what's the big hurry to get someone that can come into an office? And so we put feelers out there for someone to work remote. Um, and so we got within a week, we got 60 applicants, you know, 10 of which were tremendously qualified and their wages were, you know, almost half of what we we're going to have to pay someone in the Bay area. And so we started interviewing them and we're talking about, and, and we, and we, we talked about the remote thing. And it was and it was interesting to hear people talk about what they wanted and why. Um, and and the person we ended up we ended up hiring, um, and because people can look her up on the website, I don't want to I don't want to give too much you know personal information about her because she would not like that and it wouldn't be right. But you know she had she had personal reasons. You know it, it involved family. You know that she wanted to stay local to where she was. Um, 
and she, and she was, you know, willing to. She didn't. She didn't take a pay cut. She got paid the same amount that she did in Pittsburgh. Uh, but for us, you know, Pittsburgh wages are a lot more attractive than, you know, Bay Area wages. Um, and she's she's tremendous. Um, at some point, we'll put on the website, and 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 she's got ten years experience. She's way better than anything, anything, anyone. Um, you know, we could have picked up in the Bay Area, and you know, she's. She's just great. You know, we absolutely love her. But, you know, we talk to other people as well. You know, hey, yeah, my, my, I have this family. My wife got a job in Tennessee, and I need to work. And, you know, I've been working at, you know, Merrill Lynch, wherever it is. You know, it, and, and again, it was, it was so easy. I mean, to, I mean, to find someone highly qualified. So I, I, I think that the labor pool is growing in that sense. And mm-hmm. people who want their remote positions, their young professionals, and and they, they like where they are and that's fine you know there's still shortages um at physical late people that need physical labor um you know i my so fourth of july we went to so we, we decided to go to fireworks we leave way too late um and um and my wife and i um we, we had guests in town so we went sort of our separate ways and i decided to go to to eat after forever she went before so so before she goes she, so they, they they need to go fast so they go to mcdonald's right mcdonald's you close the window and like no one's there like just they just don't there's no one no one present and um and she just she had to pull away because there was no one to take her to like to help her um and and you know when i went to i, I went to mcdonald's after um when it was like 10 30 at night it took us an hour an hour to get our food at McDonald's. Um, like, you know, you, you go to five-star restaurants, it doesn't take an hour to get your food. You know, it took an hour. Um, and so there's definitely still some labor shortages, you know, hanging around um, there. That said, I, I, I think some of the pools, the, the, it's changed. Employers need to become more flexible um, with this stuff. And, and, you know, you have, you know, you have Tesla out there saying, everyone's got to come back in. You know, one, I think that Tesla want, wanted to get rid of workers, but it didn't want to fire people um, because it, it didn't it didn't want to have to pay the, the severance packages and it didn't want to have to pay you know the the state unemployment um, premiums that would have gone up. So they're trying to get people out the door. I think in that sense, um, but a lot of places you know you can. I mean, Google's you've been able to do it for a while. Um, you know, if you were, if you're there for any kind of tenure, you know, they'll, they'll let you work from home most of the time. So again, I, I think expectations are going to change. I don't know what's going to happen with, you know, people in like restaurants and all that stuff, which is way harder. Um, but, um, I, I, I don't, I don't know if the recognition is still on. My guess is, is that because labor demand is shrinking intentionally, you know, by the fed, um, you know, I, I, I think that that we're going to see some, some, some beggars can't be choosers <laughs> as, as they once were. So again, that that's my, my thought on it is it's improving at least in the professional services and those who are becoming more flexible um, for other parts. Again, it's, it's a little more difficult. Yep. No, thank you for that. I think you put it way more elegantly than I, I had in my head. So thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Um, I think for me uh, today, we usually go into a little bit of a summary recap. I think for me, um, what you had talked about when it came to the TurboTax comment, that stuck with me. So I love the fact that, you know, um, you could appreciate that flexibility. Hey, if your situation is not 
doesn't require a full-blown accountant. Uh, that's great. Do it yourself. I love that. And I love the fact that uh, you explained to us a little bit more deeply about the RSUs and those pieces today. And I love the title of financial adulting. I think that's great. Um, if there's ever any kind of law fight against it, you had the title first. So I think that's awesome, <laughs> right? So they can't, they can't, you got, they got no leg to stand on. If anything, you'll go back on them. So I just want to, you know, ask you, you know, what are some of the takeaways? How can people find you? And um, then we'll close the show out. Yeah. So, so my big takeaway is, you know, again, you can use TurboTax when it's appropriate. Um, and actually sometimes TurboTax is preferable to really crappy tax preparation. Um, you know, I have seen so many stupid errors on a tax return that would have been caught by TurboTax. Um, now, of course, they've seen error on TurboTax too, but, um, but uh, again, I, th I think that's one. I, th I think it's a great one. Uh, and then um, my other thing is, you know, if you're a pre-IPO company and you have stock options, see if you can get that A3B nailed down because um, it's it's such a powerful tool. Um, and then if, if you want if you want more information on us for either tax or um, or financial or wealth planning, uh, you can uh, reach us at our website, uh, wrpwealth.com, Twitter, WRP Advisory, and of course Facebook. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing the show today. I really appreciate it. I'm hoping we can get you back at some point. Um, I think Paul missed out uh, personally, <laughs> the other Paul. If, uh, so I, I think that's, I think that's. Uh, who who so, left the Florida in the summer? I don't even, I'm still trying to figure that out. Yeah, so, you know, he's talked about it on the show. His son is down there. Um, he's got one son uh, up in uh, that's going towards uh, New England. He's got one son down there. He's looking yeah. to retire down there. Uh, Paul, I'm not speaking out of turn. We've talked about all this on the show. Um, so, uh, but yeah, he's down there uh, with with the family, right? So, uh, so we wish him well. But um, no, thank you. This was a genuinely great experience. So, really, thank you. So, with that, you know, we have a favor to ask uh, our listeners. Uh, please go to YouTube and search for Financial Dads, and please subscribe to our channel. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, well, Aaron, I thoroughly enjoyed our discussion today, and I'm personally looking forward to the next one. Thanks, everyone, for downloading our podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at financialdads at gmail.com or check us out on Facebook. Just go to financialdads.com. So with that, this is Paul reminding you managing finances can be stressful, but that's why the Financial Dads are here to help you plan for success. Have a good one, everybody. Be well, and thank you.